Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hello, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today we are talking to Scott Anderson from SyncThink. Scott has a really diverse background. He was a distinguished leader of the sports medicine program at Stanford University. It was there, subsequently worked alongside Dr. Jahar as part of a multidisciplinary research collaborative studying the natural history of head injuries. So over a three-year period, Scott worked closely with Dr. Jahar to roll out investigational studies into the iSync technology. His technology looks at eye tracking, and that is the device that they will be talking about today. So in addition to his deep product knowledge, Scott also brings market expertise in domestic international sports organizations. He's actually a spotter and a consultant for the NFL. And prior to joining the team at SyncThink, he served as the chair of the PAC-12 Sports Medicine Committee. So it's interesting conversation we have today with Scott talking about their product, how they brought it to market and the different barriers that they overcame. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne Nichols. Joining me also today is Scott Anderson and, of course, your host, John Spear, founder of Greenlight Guru. Excited to be back with you guys today. So we're excited about this episode. We, Like I mentioned, we have Scott Anderson. He has 10 years of experience with the sports medicine program at Stanford University. He's also a consultant on the National Football League. Prior to joining the company that where he is now, he served as the chair of PAC-12 Sports Medicine Committee. We'll talk more about his different background and, and things that he's involved in, but I'm excited to be with you all today. Scott, you, you want to add anything to that? I'm sure you can have, add a lot, I'm sure. <laughs> well, thanks, Etienne and John for having me. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you guys. And yeah, I think you know it's a really exciting time for healthcare and healthcare technology. And I'm excited today to talk a little bit about um, some of the stuff we've been working on at SyncThink and how I think my unique background, you know, plays a part in the work that we do. So uh, glad to be with you guys and and excited to, to talk more about what we're up to. Yeah. And you know, just to, to remind folks, your current role, you're the, I think the chief clinical officer at SyncThink, right? Correct. Yep. And so we're going to talk all about that. And, and folks, if you're curious in the meantime, uh, or while you're listening, you can check out SyncThink, just go to their website and, and we'll talk a lot more about them here in a little bit. But it's, it's very easy. It's syncthink.com, S-Y-N-C-T-H-I-N-K.com. And it's, you know, it's really cool technology and I'm excited to learn more about it today. Yeah. Speaking of the technology, so what, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? I'm, I'm very curious about your background and how you applied it to this product, but maybe we can set the stage by talking about the product just for a moment. Sure. Yeah. So SyncThink is a, a neurotechnology startup based in Silicon Valley, and we really have specialized in neurological assessment. And really how we do that is we built a, a digital health, proprietary digital health platform that's based on um, eye tracking and, and capturing and recording and objectively measuring eye movements. And what people often don't really realize is that there's a whole host of neurological disorders that have a high prevalence of abnormal eye movements associated with it. And so we built this platform that leverages a virtual 
and or augmented reality headset to, uh, that the patient wears to capture and record and analyze uh, the patient's eye movements in a series of very brief assessments. And so we do different types of assessments to essentially measure real-time brain function. And real-time brain function can be captured accurately using virtual and augmented reality head-mounted displays that are embedded with sensors and infrared LEDs that can uh, illuminate the eye position inside these uh, headsets. And so this allows cameras to record what their eyes are doing. And a lot of our kind of proprietary secret sauce is built on the measurement, the algorithms, the, the quantification of what the eyes are actually doing relative to whatever content we provide inside the headset. You mentioned there are lots of neuro, I guess, issues that, that your technology can, can help with or help diagnose or determine. I mean, obviously, the, the big one that most listeners are probably familiar with, especially those sports fans out there, is concussions. You know, that's, that's obviously been a hot topic for, for the past few years. What are some of the other uh, neurological conditions that you see where your technology can be applicable? Yeah, and I, I like to look at this as in three categories. You have neurodevelopment, you have neurological function or neurological performance, and you have neurodegeneration. And what people don't actually realize, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of background on the science behind this real quick, which is that your eyes actually are serve as the window to the brain and allows you to orient yourself to the things that are happening around you. And so your brain actually utilizes your eyes to become oriented to what's happening around you. And so you can interact with people and you can respond to things that are occurring in your environment. Um, I like to say that your brain uses your eyes to select content it wants to interact with, whether that be on your phone or if something's out in my environment, um, you know, I'm at a, a baseball game and a ball's flying at my forehead, I better do something, right? And so I have to move my eyes to select that ball, understand where it's coming from and how fast it's coming towards me. And then I have to have a, a sensory motor response, whether that be I yell, oh my God, uh, or I move my head out of the way, right? So either verbal or motor actions are the, res the result of real-time brain function. Using the eyes to orient us to what's happening and then to be able to respond to it in real time is essentially how your brain is doing you're operating throughout the day. And we see deficits in how this performance occurs across the lifespan. And so certain conditions that occur in children, such as autism and ADHD, in you know adulthood or early adulthood, we see this highly prevalent in acute injuries like concussion or vestibular disorders where people have acute attacks of dizziness. And in neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's dementia, schizophrenia even, all of these share one thing in common or two things in common, I would say, is that traditionally they have always been diagnosed subjectively and right. the, the clinician is used to asking the patient about their symptoms or what's happening to them in order to make a diagnosis by exclusion. And secondly, they all have a really demonstrated prevalence that's been published extensively. Some of these conditions, you know, way back to into the 60s of having abnormal eye movements associated with them. And so what we've spent the last 15 years doing from an R&D standpoint is categorizing these abnormal eye movements and separating them out from each other to be able to show that these eye movement signatures or what we refer to as biomarkers of disease or impairment are unique and distinct from each other. All right. So this might be an oversimplification or I could be totally way off base, but you're developing technology that's leveraging neuroscience to help with diagnosis of certain neurological conditions, whereas the 
previous gold standard in many cases was uh, a clinician assessing you know symptoms not necessarily it's not that they didn't have science but they weren't using the neuroscience to support their decisions in some cases correct and and i would take it a step further and say in many situations these neurospecialists were you know doing things like MRIs or CT scans to look at the brain, but really that gives you information about the anatomical structure of the brain, not about the uh, neurological function, the, the functional capabilities of the brain, how the neural networks connect to different aspects of the brain and how they deliver messaging to allow execution of visual processing of information. And so um, we've never really had this type of technology before. And I'm really bullish on this idea that this can also be you know, something for consumers. Like you want to know how your brain performance is today and if it's optimized for what you're going to do for your job, or if your brain is actually functioning the way that it should be, or if you have something that's affected it. You know, if you have drug or alcohol abuse, if you're abusing drugs and alcohol, I should say, I mean, it's going to affect your brain's real-time function. If you're sleep-deprived, it's going to affect your real-time function. If you're highly caffeinated, it's going to help you optimize your function. And all of these measurements can be taken instantaneously from moment to moment. And when these behavioral modifications occur, it changes. And so we can see in real time how it changes, whether it's getting better and going up or it's getting worse and going down. And oftentimes, you know, this follows our, our lifespan and, you know, it gets better as we get, as we grow and we develop, it's optimized while we're, you know, young and middle-aged adults, and then it gets worse as we get older. And so being able to know that and to equip people with objective information to show them this is really critical information for clinicians, one, to, to make better clinical decisions and two, to identify the appropriate therapeutic interventions that these people need in order to overcome these conditions or to at least manage them. As I hear you talk, I'm, I'm optimistic, you know, because I think so much about the the healthcare system, especially in the United States, is is reactionary. Mm-hmm. It's dealing with something that's already happened, and sorry, uh, it's it's like slapping a bandaid on it a lot of times, uh, or or throwing a, a pharmaceutical at or what have you. But what I like about, or what I hope, uh, is is the potential about what I'm hearing you describe is the ability for us as 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 um, humans to, to be more proactive about our own healthcare and to have, you know, we go to the doctor to get physicals or, you know, maybe you get a baseline EKG or whatever the case may be. Well, why, why shouldn't this be part of that regimen so that I, as a, as a human can know where I'm at and, you know, get that early warning sign so that I can take proactive measures before it becomes a big deal. That's spot on. You're exactly right. And, you know, that's what we're really keenly interested in is, is creating more accessible access to this technology, not only within the healthcare system, but as technology evolves, we really see that there's an opportunity where potentially this could be something that is enabled on consumer devices, your phone, your, your Apple Watch, you know, potentially in the future, you're hearing a lot of talk about, you know, AR glasses, you know, that you yep. just wear and, you know, it's going to replace the cell phone. And, you know, we think that that's something that's, you know, highly probable, you know, in this decade, you know, that's likely to occur to allow us to, to, I think, facilitate the migration of hospital-based based care to consumer-based driven care, where you and I are dictating what type of help we need from the healthcare system by monitoring our own brain health and making decisions, you know, to preserve it. Hmm. Very cool. So I'm curious. So when you went through the validation, you mentioned like 10 or 15 years R&D search so, uh, or research. So 
as you went through, I'm sure you interact with a lot of different patients. Did you start to uh, almost diagnose them in your mind before you even got to the the, the product? Or yeah, it's a great that's a great question. I think what we were really after is, uh, and I'll I'll go back a ways. You know, like early 2000s. This started our founder, Dr. Jam Gajar, is a neurosurgeon, and really got his start looking at this type of measurement tool or measurement capability with the Department of Defense. We had a lot of people who were having brain injuries from the Afghan wars and from an associated sequelae from, you know, coming back from wars, having undiagnosed head injuries, having PTSD, having reliance on drug and alcohol problems to cope, uh, over-medicating with prescriptions, those types of things. And really, he received an initial grant to look at trying to develop a measurement system for something that could be you know, simple and easily deployable to be used in the field of battle to justify whether or not someone should be removed from duty. Because they wanted, so they, they, all these people were coming back from the wars with all kinds of problems, burdening you know, uh, the U.S.-based healthcare system for veterans. But not, not to mention their, their quality of life is you know, terrible. Yeah. Yeah, and nothing was being done at the point of where the injury is occurring, right? It was there were nobody was saying anything, and so a year would go by, and they would come home, and they'd have all these deficits, and so you know, really, that's where this idea came from. Was we need something that's mobile, that's very simple to use, that any you know army medic or any soldier can use in a forward field deployed capacity, and get a quick measurement on somebody and determine whether or not they need to get out of there. And that was, you know, the kind of whole basis for that. And we had a series of, of grants and funding that came from the Department of Defense over a 10-year period that allowed us to not only develop the technology to meet their specifications and ruggedization requirements, but also to do the studies to look for the specific unique identifiers of abnormal eye movements that occurred with traumatic brain injury. And we were able to identify this and the military was like, okay, well, you know, how do we know that's related to traumatic brain injury? We have, you know, a high prevalence of ADHD in our military population. We have a high prevalence of sleep deprivation in our population. You know, can you study those populations as well? And so we began to study, you know, the pre- look for st- signatures for ADHD and sleep deprivation and found that those were all different and unique to each other. And so then we started saying, huh, this is really interesting. Let's start looking at other conditions outside the military population. And it just kind of grew from there. And in 2017, after 10 years of, of studying this and working with the military, we received our first FDA approval through a pivotal clinical trial that we did with military soldiers, athletes, and civilians. And that allowed, allowed us to commercialize the technology beyond just you know, a, a military version. And so you know, we've really only been in the market for a little over three years you know, in the healthcare market, but you know, it's early days still for us and technology is still evolving, but that's, that's essentially where it started. But right now, what are the indications for use right now? Since it's a broad spectrum, is it just brain trauma or how, how do you define that? Yes, we have a very broad and a very narrow clearance. Our initial clearance was for viewing, recording, and analyzing eye movements in human subjects in support of visual impairment identification. And so this allows us to essentially provide this technology in support of any condition where there are abnormal eye movements. So all the conditions I previously mentioned, this can be used by a clinician in order to do that. Recently, a few months ago, we received our first kind of clear indication for as an aid to concussion device or technology, probably three or four months ago after another kind of, you know, deeper clinical study that allowed us to get a more specific clearance for that. We have additional clearances that we're targeting and going after currently to expand those even further. And uh, we, I would also say too, that we're in the middle of a, a, a national study for ADHD. And so that's kicked off in 2021. And we're in the middle of that right now. So it's, it's a, it's an exciting time for us to 
to expand those indications even further. Very cool. So the ADHD, are you targeting youth population as well, or is it just in the adult population? Yeah, both adult and children. Yeah, and adolescents. And That's so, exciting. yeah, and what we're what we're really doing is, you know, a lot of our initial studies that showed this, you know, the presence of this biomarker in ADHD where it was in the military population. So it was heavily based on adults. And so what we're doing with the national study now is working with clinicians all over the U.S. to capture more data specifically, I would say, with an emphasis on adolescents and children to verify the presence of the biomarker in that population as well. And also to validate the changes that occur in real-time brain function um, during titration, because many of these, these patients are placed on a dosing regimen to control their uh, ADHD, right? They, they're medicated. And uh, one thing that's really interesting about our technology is that if utilized as a surveillance tool or you know, for serial monitoring, um, we can see the improvement in the brain function based on the medication deployment. And so it helps the clinician learn to better titrate the medication to the individual. I mean, I think that's, that's huge. I mean, I, I don't know if Big Pharma will be fans of that necessarily, but I mean, I, I think that's, you know, always as a parent, you know, my kids are older now, but but as they're growing up, I mean, it's it's crazy. And at the end, sadly, I, I hope not. But you know, here in a few years, you might have to deal with this too. But how many how many kids are diagnosed with ADHD or whatever the case may be, and prescribed medication? And you know, there's litany of medications. But I always wondered, you know, like how does one know that that's effective? You know, and usually it's that back to that symptoms, right? You're like, oh, well, you know, they had these symptoms before and now those symptoms have lessened. So therefore it must be effective, but it didn't seem like there was a lot of science behind it. That's right. And I think it's our understanding of this population is still in its infancy. It seems to be highly more prevalent here in the U.S. than in other countries. And I think, you know, in talking to these professionals all over the U.S. over the past, you know, 18 months or so, it's clear that they are, there's an urgent need for objective information and helping them manage these patients. Because, you know, I don't think anybody feels right about putting a, a seven-year-old on medicine, you know, on, on pills, you know. And so I think there's something there that we're keen to evaluate further and to explore through this, this trial. And, you know, to your point about uh, the pharmaceutical companies, we have, this is another side of our business that we do work with pharmaceutical companies. And um, part of when we first were commercialized, we did with, work with a company called Shire, who, you know, is a, a heavy producer of ADHD medication. They've now been purchased by Takeda, but, you know, we had some initial work with them on this front that gave us kind of a head start on understanding what the market opportunity was looking like. I can imagine as a, a physician, I, I would want to prescribe therapies or, or you know, whatever the case this may be that that I wanted I wanted some certainty to know that this was going to be effective with my patients. So I, I can see that being an, an awesome, awesome tool uh, and a resource. And the other thing I think is interesting as we're talking, I can almost envision that that the Sync Think platform could be a vehicle or a mechanism for for other device developers, right? You know, there's been so much area or focus on areas and, and uh, Parkinson's and even, even Alzheimer's dementia that, you know, it seems like, well, wow, maybe I should engage SyncThink and, and collaborate with us in some way, shape or form to, to do a study that can help us design products and technologies that, that could be more effective. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's kind of, you know, our bread and butter is this, you know, the, the software and analytics and the eye tracking measurement. And there's a whole host of use cases, you know, for this. And, 
I don't know that, you know, we're an early stage startup and I don't know that we're going to get to all of them, right? So right. we're certainly keen to work with other organizations who have potential interest in, in pursuing those other markets. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we've been approached by those folks in the past and haven't really been, you know, from a company standpoint in a, in a place to be able to entertain that because we wanted to, you know, keep our focus on what we're doing. But I think there's a place for that in the future. And I think as technology evolves too, as well, there will be, I think, several opportunities in order to, you know, to accelerate the clinical utility of something like eye tracking for a whole host of neurological conditions. When you went through, I'm I'm curious if we go back in time just a little bit, were there any obstacles you really faced as you, it, well, I mean, one of the things that made me think of this was, it sounds like you had almost like the perfect setup with the military, the different populations with these different, very obvious diagnosis, you know, obvious might not be the right word, but what were some, some obstacles you faced though? Well, I think it's when we were doing our clinical trials to get our first FDA clearance, it was quite a challenging endeavor, I would say, in the sense that when you're trying to essentially follow for a year uh, concussion patients in different locations that are military, civilian, and, and athletes, you know, it becomes a logistical challenge. And so what ended up happening was, this is a really interesting story, actually, um, is that we had two... Um, research groups, one in New York, Boston area, and one in uh, Northern California. And we built and fashioned a, and retrofitted like uh, Winnebago, basically. And, you know, built the whole inside of testing booths. And we had, when, whenever we register somebody, we had different time points in which we had to reassess them. And so we'd take the Winnebago to their location and, and do the follow-up testing. And so we were basically, you know, mobile on wheels, you know, going through uh, New York and Massachusetts, all over those states, and uh, also, you know, Northern California to be able to, to track these people down and capture them in their locations, whether they're at home or at their sporting venue or, you know, at the army base or wherever they were. And so I think, you know, it took a small army of people on our side to be able to pull this off. We had a significant uh, research organization working on this uh, to make sure that we were doing it correctly and and following all the protocols. So you know, it was it was an extensive effort to get ten thousand people. You know, you know, Etienne, I have a slight variant of your question. I mean, so Scott, when you talked about the initial focus was for military applications, and then you know, as the team got into that, they realized, oh, there's a potential application over here and one over here and one over here. That, that seems like a good, bad problem to have. Good in that there's lots of potential use cases. Bad, maybe, in that it uh, distracts your focus. Right. So can you speak to, to sort of the, the pros and cons of that? Yeah, you know, I think people always talk, especially here in Silicon Valley, about not not boiling the ocean as an early stage startup, right? And, um, you know, that's something I think that we were very hyper aware of, like knowing our limitations and knowing that there's tremendous market potential for this. And um, there's potentially a lot of, you know, opportunities uh, for us to, I think, grow and scale our technology into different use cases. But I think we really had the mentality that we really needed to uh, drill down our focus into areas that we knew that we were good at. You know, our founder is a clinical specialist in concussion. I am as well. And, you know, it was kind of like the first step for us was to focus on that because we knew the market. We knew um, how to pull off the studies um, where we had treated 
people with those conditions for you know a number of years and and for decades even and uh, we had done prior studies in those with military and so I think it was all once we sat down and decided like what are we doing <laughs> you know we could go for f- five or ten of these things you no know, it was either you know raise two hundred and fifty million dollars in a seed round <laughs> or be logical and uh, focus on what we knew best and and grow from there that's awesome so one of the you said ten thousand so I'm, my my head's trying to get wrapped around that number for a validation is that that's how many people you were following yep yeah we had ten thousand subjects ages seven to seventy it took uh, i would say two years um, really to identify these individuals and track them longitudinally and and test them at different time points so it was quite the effort wow that makes you feel pretty good about the technology that's that's a good number <laughs> yes we, we do pride ourselves in having the largest kind of normative eye tracking database in the world. And a large part of that is because of, you know, the clinical studies that we had done previously, you know, prior to commercialization. Well, I'm excited about the big data behind it. Did you have to sync up with other, I don't know, databases of information? For example, when you talk about sleep deprivation, you know, that that's a, seems like a moving target based on the person you're talking to. Uh, I'm just curious how you, how you define some of those things. Yeah, I think in many situations, you know, our preliminary studies uh, looking at sleep deprivation was done with military soldiers because, you know, I I don't know if people know this, but there are certain conditions under which the military purposely sleep deprived soldiers. And so we were um, very lucky to be part of (laughs) some of those, uh, to have access to those populations while they were going through that process. And we actually, Fort Natick, Army base is known for doing a lot of unique things with technology and also doing some really interesting things to soldiers to see how they respond. And uh, so we worked very closely with the folks at Fort Natick over a period of years to do different um, sleep deprivation studies. And that's where we got our original kind of signature um, pickup from um, those studies. And then from there, you know, as we did additional trials, we had to be very careful about the conditions in which these people were sleep deprived, right? Like we couldn't just assume, take their word for it. We had to really had to have a very, uh, I think, specific protocol that they had to follow. And, you know, you have people that drop out of studies like that because it is a moving target, right? So you, you do the best you can and you look for the consistency in, you know, the participation and, and you try to do the best you can. Cool. Any other stories about, you know, the, as you were going, you know, from different places to different places, looking at the concussions, obviously you're served as a consultant on the National Football League. Any thoughts on on that or, or how that went? Yeah. So what I do for the NFL is different than my day job with SyncThink. You know, I, I'm part of the concussion protocol for the NFL and uh, have been active for I think this is, I just finished my 10th or 11th season, something like that. And so I've been doing it for a long time. And really my job is to, you know, serve as a uh, injury observer on game days. And so I, you know, basically I'm the guy that sits up in the booth and pulls people off the field and, and communicates to the sidelines to have those players evaluated. It initially started as, you know, something that was specific to concussion and you look for certain, you know, criteria that makes you suspicious in order for that to justify them to get evaluated, but it's grown to, you know, musculoskeletal injuries and other things as well. And so um, it's a very unique program. I actually enjoy it. And I think it's, it's definitely made the game safer having eyes in the sky to, you know, to communicate with folks and to, we, we provide um, a whole host of, uh, video feeds from different camera angles and we pipe them down to the sidelines so that the, the medical staff for each team can view the injury um, from, from the angle at which it's, best to be viewed at. And so it gives them an ins- uh, some insight into the mechanism of injury and the severity of injury as well. I just can imagine your, your setup on game day. You have like a whole wall of 
screens of, of things that are happening. So yeah, I have um, a couple of technicians that work with me in the booth and then there's one on each sideline and the technicians that are with me in the booth have like a, like a joystick controller and this allows them to select the different views and to rotate the play and to slow it down, speed it up. And we have a whole tagging system that goes into a database and um, it's really interesting, but it's also, you know, I think when I explain this to people, they think it's fun, but it's also can be very nerve wracking because you know, you have to make decisions that are going to affect outcomes of games potentially by taking people. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're trying to do what's right for for those athletes. I, I, I can imagine it makes it difficult to be a fan at the same time. So it is. I cannot watch a game now, college or professional, without looking at it through that lens because I'm just constantly pointing out, oh, that that person just injured this or this person just, you know. So it's it's less enjoyable, I'd say. <laughs> well, and, and obviously, concussion awareness is one of the higher profile, you know, potential applications of of SyncThink and. You know, as you were talking about that, I was reminded. We, Greenlight worked with a company uh, a few years ago who um, they had developed this thing. I think they call it the Q collar. Have you heard of this thing? Yep. And you know, it's basically like a thing you wear around your neck. And you know, just hearing about the development of that tech, because because up until that point, and probably even yet still, a lot of helmet manufacturers were trying to to uh, modify. The, the designs of their helmets to prevent that. But it's like, ah, that doesn't, that seems like the wrong approach, but that's Q color is really interesting. And I, I often look it up to see where they are, but, it, but they had some pretty promising results. I know in, in their early studies. Yeah, they did. Again, have you heard of that? The Q collar? Uh, yeah. Priority designs. But yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. It's simple, you know, how it works. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I love how they, I mean, that sometimes the simplest designs are the best. They just looked at that woodpecker. It's like, why doesn't a woodpecker get a concussion? It's just that, you know, around the neck. That's very cool. Yeah. Scott, have you, I know they're cleared in uh, the United States now. So it's, uh, it's pretty exciting to see that. One of the interesting things about them, and I'll let you talk to just a second. Sorry. They went as a, uh, I believe just a, a device that could be sold. And then they became a medical device at I know yours is uh, a diagnostic for a medical device. Now you're FDA cleared. Um, any thoughts on those different pathways? Maybe not them specifically, but just curious if you toyed with those ideas. Yeah, I don't, you know, like I said, I think there's something that I think you walk the line between protective equipment, you know, so to, so to speak, or, you know, a, a medical device that can prevent, you know, a situation from happening or enable the evaluation of an event from happening or, or from an event that has happened. So I think, um, you know, part of this is, in my opinion, is, you know, there's this convergence happening between technology and enterprise slash healthcare use cases where everybody, I think, you know, particularly with, you know, XR technology, uh, AR and VR is rushing towards healthcare, right? There are so many applications where VR and AR and uh, I would say biometric devices can be used for healthcare purposes, everyone's rushing towards that. But what's also happening simultaneous to that in the swim lane next to it is that consumers are taking more and more ownership over their healthcare, over their health data, and managing it themselves, right? You know, they're with with wearables and and uh, sleep trackers and activity monitors. You know, there's so there's this. I think there's a there's a, a natural convergence happening, and where these are going to collide, and we're going to be leveraging these consumer devices for um, for healthcare purposes. You know, I mean, look at the Apple Watch. I mean, think about how many you know uh, the Apple Watch has an FDA clearance. It's a consumer device. You know, and I think um, 
we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. I think, you know, as we, like I mentioned before, you know, as we get to consumer glasses, these things are going to be able to detect all kinds of different problems. You're going to be able to use your phone. Your phone's going to be able to tell you, you know, whether or not you have certain potential neurologic or musculoskeletal disorders just based on the jitter in your hands or how often your hands are, you know, or how tightly the hand is gripping the device. And then when we get to, uh, I'm really excited about the potential of contact lenses, smart contact lenses to be able to, you know, basically operate as augmented reality fields to help filter information and can be voice directed or you know eye directed towards you know a whole host of conditions so i think you know these are going to be naturally i think the future is where we're going to see a lot of this happen where we're going to be able to use medical data or patient data that's derived from the consumer for healthcare use cases, you know, and, and, you know, the, the medical devices um, of today are also going to become consumer devices and vice versa, you know, so it's really interesting. Well, and, and not just the medical devices are going to become consumer devices, but the tech that we all have, the consumer devices are going to have medical device applications within them. And I'm with you. I'm, I'm excited about that. I mean, I've talked with guests in the past, like the, like a lot of the, we'll just say fitness trackers, the things that people are wearing on their wrists or what have you. Um, those are not really regulated by and large by FDA right now. You know, they're, they're determined to be a general wellness device. Yep. So I, I think, you know, from a regulatory point of view, I think those companies, you know, to, to make that leap from being a consumer device to a medical device, there's a leap. Yep. And, by the same token, I hope FDA and other regulatory bodies are, I know what I'm about to say is, is you know, maybe in the category of an oxymoron, but I, I hope they're quick and nimble and adaptable enough to be able to accommodate that as well. And I, I know that there's lots of programs underway at FDA to try to accommodate, but this thing, these things are moving way, way more quickly than, than the regulations can keep up with. Well said. Yeah, I think, you know, when when uh, SAMD came out initially, software as a medical device, that was the, fun, the first kind of formalized effort. And yeah. I think you see a lot of people running at that, right? Like, is can we leverage software that can exist on a consumer device um, or on a proprietary medical device to be used for healthcare purpose? You know, you know, I think that's the first step. I think we're going to see others as well. But I agree. I think there's a long way to go before they match the speed of, of innovation with technology. So it's yeah. challenging. Well, it's exciting. I'm excited to see the future for Sync, you know, Sync Think, and and uh, it's exciting to hear what you've accomplished so far. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think you know we move at the pace of technology, and I think you know the next five years are going to be really, really fast in terms of how technology evolves, and I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of evolution uh, in terms of how our products and services uh, reach the market and for the different use cases that we talked about. Absolutely, cool. Scott. I appreciate you sharing so much today. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. It's great to be with you guys. All right. Well, um, we'll let you get back to it. Um, as you know, to our listeners, thank you for listening to the, to the Global Medical Device Podcast. If you want to know more, go over to the greenlight.guru website and we can, uh, uh, we'll direct you uh, to more information on, on SyncThink as well as Greenlight Guru's Global Medical Device um, platform. All right. Thank you all. Thanks.